0: Good morning, Mission. How are we doing? Why doesn't everybody who's out in the foyer just come on in? We're going to do something a little bit different this morning. Because I love you so much and I know you love teaching, I'm going to give you a short mini-teaching at the beginning here. But we're going to start with Psalm 150, so why don't you stand with me? And then just as in the olden days, we'll stand for the, the portion of teaching too. It'll be really quick, but very important. Over the last few weeks in the midst of teaching and in the midst of worship, Seth and I have touched on the topic of worship and praise to God in response for his goodness. Some of our comments, I fear, have led towards worry and self-consciousness for some in the congregation in their worship. If that's you, I want you to know that we care about you and we want to help you worship well. And I also worry that our pressing you to show enthusiasm has caused some to respond more out of a desire to please Seth and I (laughs) than it is out of a heartfelt praise to God. And both of those things sadden me and are not the goal. And so this morning, quickly, before we jump into singing together, I want to read this text and make some quick points that might refocus our minds and hearts when we worship today, okay? Amen? Amen? All right, let's read together, out loud, Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You guys get the main point of that one? Corporate praise and worship is about participation rather than pleasing. Everybody say participation. Participation. God is already pleased with you. He already loves you, and he's already called you. You don't need to praise in order to earn his love. It's out of an abundance of gratitude that we praise. And the author of Hebrews calls us the assembly of Christ And rolled in heaven, and the author of Revelation pictures us before the throne of God, praising. When I commented a couple weeks ago about inadequate worship, I used the word pathetic. And as soon as it rolled off my tongue, I went, oh, that was too harsh. So I apologize to you for that word. But the reality of what we were trying to get across, and what I was trying to get across, was I was commenting on the fact that some of you just don't participate. Let's make sure we're participating as response to Christ's already gracious invitation. If you're a person who participates, that was not intended for you, and you can walk away knowing that, okay? Secondly, corporate worship is about praise more than particulars. Everybody say praise. Praise. We don't have the exact same instruments listed. I didn't break out my lute and my harp today. I'm probably not gonna dance through the middle aisle in my underwear like David. Praise God for that, right? (laughs) But we don't have these same things. But in our culture of church that is more Reformed than Pentecostal, we don't have dancing. Is that okay? Is it okay we don't have lutes and harps up on stage? Because it's more about praise than particulars. And some of you were raised in churches where you sang old, dry hymns as the chosen frozen. And some of you were raised in hyper-Pentecostal experiences with dramatic expression. And if you weren't slain in the Spirit on a Sunday, you weren't worshiping. You now might embrace one of those. You might rebel against one of those. What I would call us to is rather than fighting against the past or bringing up things of the past, instead worry about not style or exuberance level, but focusing on the cross and what Christ has done and let your worship flow naturally out of that. Focus on the fact that he's enthroned on the praises of his people. Let your praise emanate from that fact. Part of my comments recently were about the fact that for some of you, You can clap at a good musical concert or a sporting event, but when you get in church, that seems to die down. So if that's the case, I'd call you to change that today. If you're a person who does the same level of excitement, no matter where you're at, you're good to go. Don't worry about it. Third, corporate worship is about unity more than performance. Everybody say unity. Unity. It's not competition. It's not about being seen by one another. Just so you know, I don't pay attention to you when I'm worshiping. I worship the Lord. And if you're paying attention to one another, you're not worshiping the Lord. But here's the cool part. When you focus individually to worship the Lord, you encourage everyone around you. It's about unity, not competition. It's about participation in and unity with the assembly of the saints. And when you praise in the assembly, you're collectively enthroning Christ with your praise. Those on the stage are not performing for us. They are leading us in unity. If there is clapping, we clap in unity. If we sing, we sing in unity. Don't worry about anyone else. Just ask yourself the question, am I participating in unity? Hopefully that helps clear up any confusion on what we're asking of you when we encourage you to passionately praise the Lord. Some of you are going to shout amen, and some of you are going to be in more quiet, solemn prayer as you sing. But the reality is, is we all need to participate in unity and in praise. Amen? Amen. Amen. Why don't you have a seat? You can open up to Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7 this morning. Well, a little under 19 years ago, I was graduating from college. Don't do the math. (laughs) There was a buzz on campus that year because we found out that the commencement speaker was going to be none other than the president of the United States. Now, that year, it was the new president at the time, George Bush Jr., and it was early enough in his presidency that while there were some mild protests and a few people that turned their backs to him while he spoke, there was not a large uprising on campus, His speech was fine and filled with various political statements, encouragement, and motivation. I remember it being okay. I really don't remember much of it, though. But what I do remember was the level of security. Law enforcement of all kinds surrounded the campus. Helicopters flew overhead. Heavy tactical vehicles were on the road. And within the Joyce Center, the location of the commencement, Secret Service officers in uniform and plainclothed officers were everywhere. There were snipers in the gangplanks above the arena, keeping watch with laser sights. There were Secret Service agents on the stage, posed as faculty. They were in the crowd, posing as proud moms and dads, some of them even with cameras around their necks. This was back in the days, with cameras around your necks. They were in the students section, as graduates, in full garb. And the only reason we could pick them out was because of their earpieces. This was back before everybody had their earbuds in, and so we knew that they were Secret Service, and they were continually scanning the audience in a way that showed that they weren't paying attention to what everyone else was looking at. What made it so memorable was this overwhelming sense and heaviness of authority. Speaking on stage was arguably the most powerful man in the world at the time, leader of the largest military force and nuclear arsenal on the planet, And his authority was passed down to every agent in the room so that at a moment's notice, they could exercise their presidentially authorized authority, even in the case of the snipers taking a life. Each of these men and women could only exercise authority if it were within the mission to which they were appointed. Without that mission, without that presidentially appointed authority, there was no power and no authority for each of those individuals. The enormity of the whole effort was palpable. I'll tell you what, I have never moved so slowly in my life when itching my nose. (laughs) Wanting to make sure I didn't suddenly get picked off by a sniper. (laughs) And then hours later, it was all gone. I don't know that I've ever experienced anything quite like that again. In our individualistic and narcissistic culture, there are not many contexts in which we understand this idea of deputizing someone into authority. In our culture, we've so built up the idea of the sovereignty of the self that most in our country believe we are authorities unto ourselves. We're on the border, quite honestly, of anarchy, and I don't think that's overstating it. And so it's difficult to understand power and authority being handed on to another. It's not our cultural context. This morning, though, we need to wrap our minds around this idea because this is exactly what was occurring in our text today. Jesus granting authority to his closest ambassadors so that they might spread the gospel of the kingdom beyond the limitations of Jesus' one earthly body and voice at the time. In so doing, they were responding to Jesus in a way completely contrary to the faithlessness that we read about last week in the city of Nazareth, or I should say the village of Nazareth. They operated in faithlessness and rejection. There we saw the people of Jesus' own hometown reject him. But here we're going to see the second response, not the first response of faithlessness and rejection, but the second response to Jesus' authority, submission and commission. Submission and commission. Let's read that response now in Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. To grasp the weightiness of Mark's concise narration of this response, we need to first understand some biblical context. Otherwise, this doesn't make a lot of sense to us. And that context this morning is this. You can write down the first point here. The meaning of life for every human is to image the kingdom rule and nature of God. The meaning of life for every human is to image the kingdom rule and nature of God. And because it's long, I'll read it one more time. The meaning of life for every human is to image the kingdom rule and nature of God. We have a young church, and many of us are going through midlife or mid-midlife crises. I guess it's a new thing with those of us in our 20s. You go through a mid-midlife crisis now. I think we're just people in crisis. The reality is, is we know the meaning of life as Christians. This is nothing new to those of you who have walked with us through a good deal of the biblical story already, but let's review again so that we can fully internalize this idea. If you've been with us a while, you recognize that I often go back to Genesis as a starting point. And the reason is, is because it gives us who we are, our identity. I hear often from people that I speak with about depression or anxiety, that this idea has come up in their minds that life has no meaning. Uh, One gentleman who um, we did as a case study in, in class was a guy who basically said, I realized that all of life was picking up a rock, carrying it to the other end of the field, dropping it, getting up the next morning, picking up a rock, and going to the other end into the field. And one day I decided I was going to drop the rock and not pick it back up again. It's a man who committed suicide. That's the reality of what our culture thinks when they don't have any further purpose outside of themselves. Why would I keep picking up the rock? But the reality is, is you are intended for far more than that. Your life is not just some monotonous accident that happened because of evolution. You are intended with a purpose and a mission, and we have to remember that. I think this is why the book by Pastor Rick Warren called The Purpose-Driven Life flew off the shelves more than a decade ago. Everybody wants to know their purpose. And the saddest part is that we look to all the external things of life to fulfill that purpose. We look to our job. We look to our spouses, our children, our hobbies, our vacations, our sexuality. And in all those cases, we end up realizing that they don't fulfill us. All the while failing to realize that it is by our very existence and the reflection of our creator that we are given meaning. Let me explain. The first place that we see this idea is in the Garden of Eden. Many of you can probably state these verses from memory by now, but let's take a look there at Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What is your primary identity, brothers and sisters? Image bearers of God. It's your primary identity. That wasn't just for Adam and Eve. That is each and every one of you. And let them have dominion. That's a kingdom word. That's an authority word. Over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That is not just about hunting and fishing, guys. That is about having dominion because you are deputized in the image of God. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. In our culture, it's very bad to talk about this. This is politically incorrect. Your genderedness is part of your identity because it was given by your creator. If you feel as though your genderedness is not appropriate and you should switch, please, I beg of you, come talk to me. Because there's something deeper going on than just your genderedness or sexuality. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then he says in Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. These verses clearly speak to what mankind was intended for. First, we were intended to bear the image of God. The word image there in the Hebrew is tselem. We should know that pretty well, right? It's a T on, on the front of Salem. Tselem. Everybody say it. Salem. It means image. It means idol elsewhere in Scripture. It means that the object to which it is referring is a representative figure of the one who created it. It's used and translated elsewhere in scripture to discuss the little statues, the idols that reflect false gods. We've discussed in Mark already how the Roman emperors would place statues, idols, tselem, in cities so that the people in those cities knew who their Roman emperor was. It was an image of the authority and power. By humans bearing the tselem of God, we are proclaiming to all the created order, including spiritual beings, including non-believing humans, and including creation, that Yahweh is creator and king. Amen? Amen. Secondly, though, we were also to subdue and work or cultivate. Because we bear the image of God, we are to wage war against all the kingdom of darkness and all that it stands for, such as injustice and rebellion so that we can subdue the portion of the created realm in which we reside for his glory. And within that, we are to cultivate. God obviously has artistic, inventive, and creative characteristics that he exercised in his process of making creation. As we positively create, develop, work, and steward creation towards justice and righteousness, God is glorified and God is reflected. This was our purpose as mankind. In filling these roles, we would exercise the submitted power of the creator as rulers over his creation, a kind of sub-regents or sub-rulers. But the story of the fall is that rather than fill the role God graciously gave us as his people, we instead chose to try and rebelliously seize his role of ruler and of lawgiver and thus lost relationship with him. Not because he threw us off, but because we removed ourselves from him, severing ourselves from his holiness. You see, if I committed adultery against my wife, I would be choosing to step out of my role as her exclusive husband and she my exclusive wife. And if she left me, it wouldn't be because she left me, it would be because I chose to step out of my role. In Original Sin, we chose to step out of the role of created being subservient to the creator, And when we did that, he didn't leave us and say, I hate you. He said, okay, I guess I'm not your God anymore. And that's the fall. And because of that, we deserve just punishment, rebelling against the obvious authority of the creator. But you guys know the story. God didn't give up on his plan of having mankind reflect his glorious rule. He kept going. And so in Genesis 12, he chose a man from the pagan worshipers named Abram, later Abraham, And called him to be his own special people. And as the book of Genesis closes, his family is down in Egypt, surviving a famine of worldwide proportions. But then, as they cried out in slavery, in the Exodus, we join up with Abraham's offspring. Now a large nation known as the Hebrews, or Israel. The story of the Exodus is that God frees them from enslavement to the darkened kingdom run by pagan gods and the pharaoh of Egypt. And this is what he says in Exodus 3, 7 through 8. This is why the Exodus occurred. Read this and understand this was before the law and notice the grace that the Old Testament God acts in. Then the Lord said, that word Lord there behind it has the name Yahweh, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh in the the Hebrew. And he said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Parasites. Just kidding. Bad pastor joke. <laughs> Realize how beautiful this is because Jesus could, see, could say the exact same thing to you and to me. I have surely seen your affliction of my people who are in the world and have heard their cry because of their taskmaster's sin and the kingdom of darkness. I know their suffering. I'm acquainted with their sorrows. And so I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the worldly kingdom of darkness and Satan himself, to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, heaven itself, the abode of God. See, this exodus had just as much grace as the gospels do. It is a misunderstanding to think that the Old Testament God was law, And the New Testament God is grace. They are one in the same, always gracious. He saves them by his grace through the Exodus to free them from the oppressive kingdom and false gods that enslave them so they might be free to do what? Worship him. As he gets them ready to go, he gives Moses instructions for the people that they are to be ready to go uh, go right after eating the Passover meal in which they accept the grace of God and show it by putting the blood of the lamb on their household, on their door lintels. And he spares their lives from judgment because they, bleed, uh, they plead the blood of the sacrifice. And after the meal, Moses is told this by God. This is Exodus 12, 11 through 13. After he tells them about the Passover, he says, In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, And your staff in your hand. Does this sound slightly familiar to our idea in Mark? It's the same exact things. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. You pull Egypt out of there, and you talk about the world, and you pull out the Passover lamb, and you put in place the Passover lamb of Jesus Christ, this sounds like a New Testament passage. Once I see the blood, I will pass over you. My wrath will not land upon you. It's kind of an interesting parallel to the wording in Mark 6 of Jesus, about the things that are to be taken. These folks were to be prepared at a moment's notice to be freed to go and worship God and accomplish his mission. And as they go into the wilderness, God gives them his law, not as a means to earn salvation or relationship, but because relationship through gracious covenant had already been established and promised through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now Moses. Then what was the purpose of the law? It was to make them a holy people set apart from the pagan nations so that they might draw the nations to Yahweh. Remember this from Deuteronomy 4? It's been a little while, so let's refresh. Deuteronomy 4, 4 through 8. But you who held fast to the Lord your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, "'Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him.'" Notice the relationship there. "'And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today?' Through obeying the law, Israel was to, man, was to image the heart of God in righteousness and justice and show their intimate relationship to him by their very life. Through defeating the surrounding pagan nations in Canaan, they were making good on the command to subdue those who worship demonic entities. But we know the story. Rather than standing apart in holiness, Israel succumbed to the influences of the world that surrounded them. Slowly but surely, they morphed into nothing more than just a different geographic group that still worshiped the same pagan deities. They were worshiping largely the same gods as the pagans. But from the faithful remnant of followers of the Lord, a Messiah was born, Jesus of Nazareth. How did Jesus do in imaging the heart of the Father? Anybody want to answer that? Perfectly. This is what he says to the Colossians in Colossians 1.15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Jesus perfectly fulfilled The purpose driven life, to steal the phrase. And in 2 Corinthians 4 4, this is what Paul says about Jesus. He says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, Christ, who is the image of God. Jesus is the fullness of the image of the Father in human form. He is the fullness. excuse me, of what Adam was supposed to be. That is why Paul uses the title of Jesus being the second Adam, the one that actually does what Adam was supposed to do. He is the fullness of Israel in obedience to the Father, perfectly fulfilling the law. In Jesus, the fullness of subduing the kingdom of darkness occurred by his death on the cross and his victorious resurrection three days later. In Jesus, the fullness of God is manifest by his ministry of righteousness and justice and his proclamation of the authority of the Father, the need to repent, and that authority then being given over to him, the Son. But the gospel doesn't end with his resurrection. He was then seen by hundreds of witnesses and then ascended into heaven to take his position of authority at the right hand of the Father. And from that position of authority, he poured out his Holy Spirit into his church, the new covenant people, the group of people that Paul calls the Israel of God in his letter to the church at Galatia. This group of people in new covenant faithfulness to Christ, both Jew and Gentile, joined together, as the book of Ephesians says, submitted to his reign and rule under the law of Christ in righteousness and justice. And we rely upon his grace for salvation. And we are known as the body of Christ throughout the epistles. Collectively, as that body of Christ, we are now the image, the Father. We are to image the Father in a spirit empowered way, living under the control of the Spirit. This is why I rage against the idea of don't pay attention to us, the church. We're hypocrites. Pay attention to Jesus. We are literally the body of Christ. He wouldn't have given us that title and gone, oh, by the way, don't pay attention to them. If we're hypocrites, we need to repent. And so we walk in submission to his authority, proclaiming his kingdom come and the need for repentance and walking in works that reflect God's heart of righteousness and justice. And this theme we've looked at shows clearly that the meaning of life for every human is to image the kingdom rule and nature of God. That's your purpose, and that's my purpose. And one day that will be the state of affairs on the new heaven and new earth with Christ ruling and reigning in fullness. And so we strive for that day. In Mark 6, we see the same idea of God passing on his authority to his people. Remember, this is the start of the church. And so what we're going to see is, number two, you can write this down, submission to his rule means being commissioned for his mission. And yes, I did try to figure out how to fit the word mission in as many times as possible. Submission to his rule means being commissioned for his mission. It is interesting that the word mission is in all those, isn't it? If you know language, that means that we need to pay attention to the mission. In our text this morning, we see the two bookends of verse 7 and verses 12 and 13 in Mark 6. These three verses enclose the remaining verses and let us know that this section is focused on saying that Jesus has commissioned the twelve to act in his authority as they go forth to fulfill his mission. First, we see in verse 7 that Jesus called them to himself for the purpose of sending them out. Now, this is awesome in the Greek because they're called the 12 here for important reason, as I'll get to, but the word send there is where we get the word apostolos in the Greek. Apostle means sent one, okay? The very fact that we call them apostles is we're saying they are the sent ones. It's always funny to me whenever there's, you know, I turn on a, a, one of the Christian channels and you got somebody up there who's the Apostle Hans, and I'm like, oh, that's good, I'm glad you know your identity, but you're not the only one, <laughs> Right? The reality is, is we're all sent. Well, Hans, does that mean we can all call ourselves apostles? If you're really into that kind of thing, go for it. But the reality is, we're all sent. Why? Because we're first called. Trusting in Jesus results in an exodus from the kingdom of darkness to be free to proclaim his sovereignty and worship. And this is reminiscent of what we saw in our quick review of the exodus. In the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew takes a little bit of a different take. Matthew takes great care and time to picture Jesus as the new Moses, going up the mountain, doing the Sermon on the Mount, and in the Beatitudes and that sermon, he gives the true Israel the right understanding of the law of God. The true Israel being Jews and Gentiles who want to follow Yahweh in righteousness and justice. Now, in essence, he was creating a new Israel that's to be sent out with the same purpose as what Israel was told in Deuteronomy 4, not to look to the law for salvation, but to reflect God through their obedience to God's rule of righteousness and justice. You and I are the same. Here in Mark, we have it far more succinct, but notice verse 7. If we read over it too quickly, we miss it. Notice he calls the twelve. Now, you guys are good Old Testament scholars. Think for a moment. Old Testament, the number 12. What does that make you think of? 12 tribes of Israel. 12 speaks of governmental perfection and fullness to the Jewish mind. And so Jesus is creating a new Israel here. Hans, are you a replacement theologian? Yes, I am. The church replaced ethnic Israel. But the church is made up of? Jews and Gentile, ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. That means that he wasn't making good on his promise to the Jews. Did you not just hear me? It's made up of ethnic Jews and ethnic Gentiles. God fulfilled his promises in the church. 12 speaks of this idea. He then takes these new 12 heads of the church and sends them out. And he notes in verse 7 two very important themes. First, we see that they were to be sent out two by two. Stay in your Old Testament mindset and think about why two is so important. This was for support and safety, but also think about why two is important in the context of the law, as we've talked about already. The entirety of the legal practice of Israel in the Old Testament was that no charge of judgment or sin towards judgment could be leveled or established by only one person. How many witnesses did you need at a minimum? Two. Two. You needed two witnesses. Every charge must be established by two witnesses. This is Deuteronomy 19.15. It's elsewhere as well. A single witness that shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. You even notice this when uh, the prophets or even Jesus himself or in Revelation, it talks about heaven and earth will testify. One, two, I got witnesses. That leads us to ask the question of what they were supposed to be witnesses to. Well, remember that the immediate context of this passage is right after the refusal by Jesus' own people at Nazareth. He came to his own and his own did not accept him. And recognize that the gospel is still largely contained within Israel at this point. Jesus has done some ministry to the east side of the lake, talking to a few Gentiles. But mostly, Jesus is still trying to reach the Jewish tribes with the message that their Messiah has come. And the twelve are sent on this same holy task. They are initiating a new exodus. Thus the similarity in language in verse 8 of Mark 6. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. Thus, this is a statement of reliance on God and of urgency. Urgency that they had a mission and that they needed to be ready for at any moment to go and fulfill the mission God was calling them to, the mission of worship. And secondly, we see the context that they are to go proclaiming the same thing that Jesus did, Remember Mark 1, 14 through 15? This is what it said in the very first chapter of Mark that we covered a few months ago. It says, Now after John the baptizer was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God. What was it that he said? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. They were to let Israel know that the kingdom was among them, that the Messiah that they've been waiting for was there, and they were dishonoring God by not following his rule. But if the family that they were speaking to refused, the household that they were going to to witness refused, what were they to do? Look at Mark 6, 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. This idea of shaking dust off of feet is a statement of judgment. It was a well-known tradition that pious Israelites were to do this if they walked out of the promised land into Gentile territory and then returned. As soon as they went across the boundary into Ha'eretz, the land, they would shake the dust of the Gentile judged nations off their feet. This forms the immediate context for the task of the sent ones. It's a statement of distinction. There was a dividing line between those who refused Christ and those who followed him. It is so terrible to our contemporary ears, but Mark constantly is painting the line of insiders to the kingdom and outsiders to the kingdom. There is a dividing line. The 12 were sent out to proclaim the good news that the king of the kingdom of heaven had arrived and leave witness of judgment if there was not repentance. They were to clearly state that there was a line of delineation between following Christ as king and not. You see, to evangelize is to bring the truth that salvation is found in Christ alone. And in his reign, we have one true king. And if we refuse that, True evangelization brings the fact that there will be judgment. It's fun to tell people God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Just try them out for 30 days. You'll see. I love that message. Super hard to add the second piece. If you are sitting here today and you refuse the gospel, recognize you are hardening your heart one more time turn and repent and believe the gospel truth that Jesus is king. You see, the reality of the biblical story is that all mankind already stands judged and condemned in sin. Each of us desire to be Lord of our own lives and live according to our own rule and self-concern. This is why we talk all the time about humility and a willingness to listen to other people. If there's not humility there, you're your own ruler and the gospel has not taken root in your life. In that heart attitude, we have already been judged. What confirmed that once and for all is that Jesus stepped into our world and proclaimed his rightful place as Messiah and King by stating that the kingdom of God is amongst us and mankind responded by crucifying him instead of glorifying him we like to think of ourselves, I'm sure in 2020, or at least I do, I would have been one of the followers. But then I take a look at my past and I realize I would have been at the front of the crowd chanting, crucify him, crucify him. We will not have this man reign over us. We're condemned already. This is what the gospel, according to John, speaks about in one of the most well-known passages. Why don't you turn there with me to John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. I found this Bible the other day, back from the 1970s, the Jesus People Movement, and it had certain passages highlighted in the Bible as if they were important and more important than the others. So it had the Romans Road passages, you know, cherry-picked out of Romans, right? Don't read the rest of Romans, just read these. It had John 3.16 cherry-picked, right? But let's pay attention to what is not said if we stop at John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is good news. Amen, church? That's good news. Praise God for that, because we would be dead without it. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is good news. Amen, church? And if we don't get these two verses, we are in big trouble. These are the heart of the gospel. But notice also verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it might be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We are condemned already because we do not grant authority where authority is due. We do not honor the rightful king. Do you see why humility is so very important, dear church? This is also why we are told those who are truly Christ's will rule and reign and judge with Christ. I've always kind of thought about that in the future. What's that look like? Do I get a cool crown? You know, do I get the flowing robe? I hope they have size tall, right? In chapter 6 of his first letter to the church at Corinth, Paul is speaking to the fact that brothers and sisters in the church were forming lawsuits against one another, and he makes this seemingly odd statement as a response. Notice this with me, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 4. When one of you in the church has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Interesting. And if the world is to be judged by you, okay, that blows away the whole idea of Catholicism with saints. These guys were acting this terrible, and they were still considered saints, okay? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Guys, this is all about church discipline, church authority, eldership, right? Okay, this is about authority in the church. But notice that in the midst of it, the immediate context is that the church is supposed to handle disputes within the house of God before it ever goes to civil lawsuits. But what stands out in the context of what we are discussing is the idea that believers, meaning you and me, will participate in judgment day. You think the idea of bringing church discipline against a brother or sister in sin is scary? Talk about this. You're literally going to judge Satan himself. You're going to judge the angels. We will be the ones to stand in judgment with Christ. How will we do that? Because we will be witnesses to the refusal of those entities to bow the knee to Christ. Jesus is the lawgiver and judge. But just as the two witnesses going out to proclaim the gospel throughout the world will act as witnesses against whoever refuses them in Mark 6... And they'll show that by knocking the dust off their feet. You and I will act as witnesses at the final judgment. The knocking off the dust of the feet was just a simple reminder of, hey, I don't want to do this, but recognize your refusal is that you're going to get judged. When we realize that this is the commission and command of God to go throughout the world making clear distinction of who is Christ's and who is not, it brings a new weight to our call to evangelize, does it not? And notice the difference. Please, please, Christians, that this is not judgmentalism where you go on Facebook and plaster people who are not believers for being non-believers. The other day I heard about somebody who's sending out all these letters and writing Facebook posts about how true Christians should get off of Netflix because they have a show on there about a gay Jesus. Guys, I'm shocked it's taken this long for the world to produce that. It's not shocking it's on Netflix. Here's an idea don't watch it. <laughs> but don't get in this boycott somebody who's non believers. You'd literally have to step out of the world, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. You want to rage against non believers? Stop buying your Starbucks and going to Winco and going to Wilco and going to Walmart and go literally. I think there's like two families in our church that literally do this live off the land. Hans, is that a command for a good Christian? No, I go to Wilco. I just don't buy stuff that's demonic. I go to Winco. I go to Walmart. Walmart, I just don't watch that show on Netflix. See, we can stand in judgment of the world, but Paul says, guys, that's not your job. Everybody turn to 1 Corinthians 5. I don't have a slide for this one because this is off the cuff, but go to 1 Corinthians 5. Look at verse nine. First Corinthians five nine he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if they are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Wait a minute, Paul. That's what the church is great at. Just read our Facebook posts. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, so you purge the evil person from among you. Our job is to keep distinction, to be a people set apart. That's why we take church discipline and membership so seriously, because there's a dividing line. Hans, it's so mean to have a dividing line. That's not me, guys. That's Jesus. There's a dividing line. When we realize that this is the commission and command of God to go out throughout the world making clear distinction of who is Christ and who is not, it brings that new weight to our call to evangelize. It speaks to the fact that we are not just bringing good news for some future time. We are bringing that. But we are proclaiming the fact that the kingdom of God exists now with Christ as its head. It's been inaugurated and is yet not fully here. And to not accept that now is to continue in judgment as an outsider to that kingdom. We who are his, true Christians that are citizens of the kingdom of God are those who are part of this renewed Israel, sent out to act on behalf of God to take part in the final exodus, proclaiming the truth of the kingdom come to those that need to repent, reflecting the kingdom rule and nature of God in all we do, and if that gospel is refused, we shake the dust off our feet in testimony that they have refused to submit to Christ. It's amazing to me how quickly Jesus says, "Say the gospel. If they don't refuse, don't waste your. Or if they refuse, don't waste your time. Move on." It's very contrary to a lot of how we teach evangelism today. Now, if you're anything like me, you understand the gravity and weight of this responsibility. It's not just giving the good news, but it's giving the bad news to those who refuse. Guys, the gospel is horrific news to the world if they don't repent. But it also sounds odd to us. None of us are going through Jewish villages. None of us have staffs or Israelite sandals. I don't know. Some of you Northwesterners probably have the walking staffs, right? We rarely walk in dust, And many of us are not performing exorcisms or healing. So part of us is left wondering, what does this mean for us in 2020? That's the last section we're going to talk about today. What does this response of submission and commission look like practically today? Well, turn with me to the book of Acts, and I think we're going to start to see a little bit, because this is after the Gospels. And Paul is really the first of the church that didn't necessarily walk with Jesus. He was taught by Jesus in Revelation as he encountered him, but Paul was like you and I. He was kind of the second generation. He was after the apostolic. He was part of the apostolic, but kind of after it, okay? So look at um, Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. Or excuse me, starting in verse 1. This slide should say Acts 1, 1 through 8. And notice what it says. In the first book, O Theophilus, the author Luke here is writing, who also wrote the gospel according to Luke. Theophilus, by the way, means lover of God. So many think he wasn't writing to a person. He was showing it as a letter, but writing to all who love Christ and love God. In the first book, of Theophilus, I have uh, dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now you'll notice in your Bibles, many of your Bibles, it's entitled the Acts of the Apostles. This is the book of the continuation of the work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit placed in his deputized apostles, his ambassadors, those designated and appointed to continue his work. And we know this is the case because they were given power to perform in Acts many of the same signs and wonders of Christ as a way to testify to the authority given to them. Now, we know that that goes away slowly but surely because Paul himself, in later letters, isn't using his power to heal. He's saying, hey, please pray for our brother who's sick and we're worried about him. If he had the power to heal still, he would have just healed him. And so I'm a person who believes that certain gifts of the Spirit ceased at a certain point. You can disagree with me. That's totally okay. It's a secondary issue. But also right here, it says in verses 1 through 3 that he chose the apostles and gave them the message of what? The kingdom of God. They were to go and preach the kingdom of God. Guys, please notice with me that verse 3 does not say, take a message where if you pray a prayer, you get to go to heaven when you die. That is not the gospel. And churches who proclaim it to be the gospel, they're giving you a piece of the gospel, but not all of it. The kingdom of God is the gospel. What was it that they were to do? They were to receive the promised Holy Spirit for the purpose of what? to go be witnesses, to fulfill the commission given to them in the gospels, to be witnesses testifying to the fact that the kingdom of God has arrived in Jesus Christ and those who submit to him are part of that kingdom. It's a king ruling a people. And if they refused, the apostles were to move on and tell someone else. Paul carries this out so beautifully in his own life that he then takes this and look at the end of Acts. Everybody turn with me to Acts 28. Acts 28, verse 23. Paul was under house arrest in Rome, and so, as he did in any new city he attended, he goes to the Jews to give them the gospel news that their Messiah was enthroned in Jesus. So they come to him and take a look there in verse 23, what Samantha read to us earlier. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Think about how this must have come off. He's sitting in a group of Jewish men, and he says, the Holy Spirit was right in saying this about you. Talk about offensive. Verse 26, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Notice with me, everybody say it out loud. What is he proclaiming? Everybody look at it, look at it in your Bibles. You read the words there. I'm not making this up. Read the words out loud. What is he proclaiming? The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. God. As he lived there two more years. He gave the gospel to any who would listen. And the good news that he gave was the kingdom of God, a king ruling a people. And teaching about the Lord, Yahweh become flesh and the man Jesus Christ, who's the anointed Messiah spoken of in the Old Testament, who died for your sins and for mine so that we could be welcomed into that kingdom as citizens of heaven. Without his death and resurrection, we are outsiders to the kingdom. By his death and resurrection, we are welcomed in the new exodus. Dear church, have you accepted this truth? If you're an individual sitting here today and you haven't accepted that truth, then today is the day. If you've never professed that you want Jesus as Lord of your life, our elders would love to pray with you in the back to do just that. Church, make use of your elders. They're back there to pray with you. You don't have to have this massive world-ending thing to go pray about. Go pray with them. They want to pray with you. And if you're a person who needs to pray to accept Christ and to repent, they would love to do that with you. Maybe you are a person that is simply held on to belief in Christ as fire insurance to get you out of hell, but you haven't submitted your life to his reign day in and day out. Our elders would love to pray with you in true repentance today. Take advantage of them being back there. Go and pray with them. But if you are a person who follows Jesus, if you're a citizen in his kingdom, as we've seen today for the rest of us, Our mission has not changed at all from Jesus, from the first apostles, or any of the early church. Jesus alone accomplished salvation. But what he then deputized his apostles to do, we are to continue. We are to continue the announcement of the kingdom of heaven by our words, by our actions, by our community, and by our lives if you've been called, you have likewise been sent. There is not one person in this room that gets out of the mission of being an evangelist. In short, you are an evangelist. And there are five things that we're going to draw from this text very quickly that give us our marching orders, and we'll end with this. First, you have been given the apostolic mission. Every person in here In the cross and resurrection, the work of salvation is finished. It's done. You don't need to earn it. You don't need to do work for it. And at the same time, in proclaiming the kingdom of God, that work continues. It is not finished. But Hans, I thought Jesus said it is finished. It was. Salvation was finished on the cross. That's why we're saved by grace through faith, not any works. But then, we need to go work because of it. By the authority of Christ, you have been given a mission in life to proclaim the kingdom of God. You might do it as a stay-at-home mom talking to your children. You might do it just as a neighbor to one of your neighbors who you've known for a great time. You might do it as a contractor on the job, as a cubicle worker in between working on your computer. You might do it as a nurse, as you care for your patients. You might do it as a landscaper, as you speak with your clients. But your mission is to proclaim the kingdom of God. This week, I challenge each of us, okay, this is application point. I challenge each of us to come up with a mission statement for your life. What is your mission in life? I guarantee most of you will sit down and not have any clue what to write. But I've given you your mission today. How do you use your current circumstances in life to preach and proclaim the kingdom of God? Jesus died, resurrected, and enthroned. What's your mission in life? Secondly, as evangelists, you recognize the urgency of the message. You are inviting men and women to participate in the second and greatest exodus to experience true freedom in Christ and freedom from the kingdom of darkness. Dear brothers and sisters, have you shared this with everyone you find yourself in close relationship with? If not, I want you to ask the question, what's holding you back? Is it fear of the loss of the friendship or fear of retaliation? It's a hard thing to think about taking the gospel truth to someone and them refusing it. But that that shows that you honor God more than you honor yourself. This week, I want to challenge you to take those fears to the Lord and pray for empowerment to state clearly where your allegiance lies. Third, because you're evangelists, you walk in distinction from the world. The shaking off of dust from one's feet was a sign not of self-righteousness, but of distinction. If we're self-righteous, we haven't understood what God has done for us. None of us deserve it. We should be the humblest of people. But it's a sign of distinction. Rather than condemning the world's actions which you cannot control, the question is, are you walking, talking, and living in a way that is distinctive from the world around you? And all of us can continue to grow in that, myself included. A third point of application is that this week you can sit down as families or individuals or roommates and list out what makes you distinct or set apart from this world. And if you find that there is no distinction, that you look exactly like the world, it's time to repent. Our evangelistic message falls flat if there is not a distinctive lifestyle to back it up. Fourth, you, re- you proclaim repentance and the kingdom of God. The good news we preach is that a righteous king is enthroned over the world and those who are his need to repent from their worship of self and submit to his rule. This is an offensive message. It's offensive to those who don't want to submit to his rule. Be ready to offend. By his sacrifice and forgiveness, We can repent, though, because of his work and his pouring out of his spirit. This is a possibility for all who desire it. But for those who refuse to repent, our reflection of the need to repent should make them extremely uncomfortable. I love how Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. He says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Sounds like kingdom language there, doesn't it? And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, for we are the aroma of Christ the God among those who are being saved. Notice, and among those who are perishing, we are also the aroma of God. To one, a fragrance from death to death. That's for those that are perishing. That's kind of stinky, isn't it? It's offensive to the nose. Death to death. To the other is fragrance from life to life. And then we hit the reality that most of us in this room, with this weight of evangelism, we think, how can I do this? Paul asks the question, who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so so many Peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. If you have been called, you have been sent. If you have been sent, you've been empowered by the very spirit and commission of Christ to go and do his work. Brothers and sisters, meditate on this scripture this week and ask yourself the question are these my marching orders? Am I the scent of life to those who desire to follow Christ, and am I the scent of death to those who refuse? As you go to your homes, your schools, your places of work. Fifth and lastly, because you're evangelists, you act in ways that bring Jesus' rule to bear in your own life first, but recognize that these ideas in Mark of casting out demons and anointing the sick with oil may be tasks that you are called to perform. And if you are presented with sickness, pray in the power of Jesus. And if you are presented with demonic activity, pray in the authority of Jesus. But remember that these acts come from the previous few sections of Mark and are giving witness to Jesus' authority over chaos and the kingdom of darkness. So we do the same in waging war against the kingdom of chaos, oppression, and darkness. With every act of care for the oppressed, every act for the vulnerable, for the poverty-stricken, we engage where we can to bring the Lord's righteousness and healing to bear. In the way we live our lives and interact with those around us, we will either manifest the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. And so... The fifth point of application this morning is, are you engaged in the opportunities we have in this church? Providing benevolence to one another and to our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso. Caring for those in the foster system and engaging with IJM and Compassion International. Helping as we can and serving the homeless in this community. These are ways to bring Jesus' rule of righteousness and justice to bear. Brothers and sisters, you and I have been sent on a holy errand to be witnesses to the glory of God and his kingdom come into our lives. The church is not a place to come once a week to ease your conscience so that you can live the good life the rest of the week. The church is the gathering place of the saints sent out on a holy mission, missionally to go out to spread the gospel. To some, it will be water to a thirsty soul as they accept what we are proclaiming as good news. To others, it will be the stench of death, refused and ultimate rebellion against God's rule. Regardless of where we go, though, we will be fulfilling God's commission to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. Dear brothers and sisters, if you have been called by Christ, then you have been sent by Christ to proclaim that Christ is king. You are evangelists and witnesses. Let's embrace that mission and identity so that we might go from this place proclaiming Christ's kingdom come. You, dear brothers and sisters, are heralds of the gospel, witnesses to God's righteous glory and just nature, and bringers of the kingdom of justice and righteousness. That is your identity. That is what you are because you have been purchased by the blood of Jesus on the cross. That is what you are because in being saved by him, you have resurrected in his nature. And this calls for the response of submission and commission to go forth in his name.